On March 24, 1996, which was Nisan 5, 5756 in the Jewish calendar, my father died. In the year that followed, I said the prayer known as the Mourner's Kaddish three times daily during the morning service, the afternoon service and the evening service in a synagogue in Washington and when I was away from home in synagogues elsewhere. It was my duty to say it for reasons that would become clear in this book. I was struck almost immediately by the poverty of my knowledge about the ritual that I was performing with such unexpected fidelity and it was not long before I understood that I would not succeed in insulating the rest of my existence from the impact of this obscure and arduous practice. The symbols were seeping into everything. A season of sorrow became a season of soul renovation, for which I was not at all prepared. You're joining us on Bloom, a conversations podcast about anything and everything. That was Dr. Paul Monk, reading the first two paragraphs from the preface to Kaddish, a book by Leon Veseltier, published in 1996, about how he as a Jew came to terms with the death of his father and the wider and deeper impact that that had on his life. Paul, why should any of us observe the rituals of the kind that Veseltia wrote about in Kaddish? Well, the prior question might be, what do we in fact do when it comes to rituals and commemoration of the dead? It's worth asking that question because this tells us quite a bit about why we do it and we can build on that. I mean, it differs from culture to culture. Leon Vesiltia's experience as an observant Jew was of recovering the tradition that he had taken for granted, not thought very much about, and realising, as he says, that there was a poverty in his own understanding of why it was done at all, and it came back to life for him. It sounds a little strange to say that we're talking about death and it came back to life, but it, it became clear to him that there was a reason for doing these things, that it was dignifying, it imparted meaning to his life, and it seeped into aspects of his life other than simply grieving for his father. And I think if we looked at at culture after culture over time and across space around the world, we would find similar things occurring that when people, on the occasion of the death of a parent or a beloved or a child, do in fact take time out to immerse themselves in the rituals for the dead, it brings home to them the whole meaning of life, the significance of closeness to somebody, of caring about somebody, of losing somebody, of taking stock of their own mortality. That's what's at stake here. And Viseltius is a, is a special, very articulate case in point. Well, in that context, one of the most famous English poems is Thomas Gray's Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard, which touches on a lot of the themes and contexts you've just spoken about. Yeah, it does. Uh, you know, it has been said, as you put it, that uh, that particular poem is one of the best known, most loved, and most commonly recited or read in the English language. And it's very striking that that should be so, because at least as I read it, it's an uncomplicated poem. It, it's not a highfalutin poem. It's not a complex one. Uh, it's written in a simple rhyme and meter. Uh, it's a relatively long poem, but not by any means an epic poem. And it simply is a reflection on the realities of death and burial and the commemoration of the dead and the unknown stories of a humble dead. And, uh, and it invites us to reflect on the course of life and, and the dignity of the dead uh, and the nature of being human. Uh, I mean, it's significant given its popularity that if, for example, one reads just the opening four-line stanza, the curfew tolls the knell of parting day, the lowing herd winds slowly o'er the lee. The ploughman homeward plods his weary way and leaves the world to darkness and to me. Two things are probably going to occur. An unusually large number of people will say, oh, I've heard that, which would not be true of a great many poems. Mm. Mm-hmm. And secondly, the final line of that opening stanza brings the first person, you know, present indicative active exit into the story. I am implicated in this. To me. Right, to me, right, to darkness and to me. And darkness there clearly denotes this sense that this is a sombre matter, right? It's night, it's death, it's Mm. significance, it's not cheeriness in which one can put those thoughts away and just get on with pleasant activities. Developing, right? And that's the beginning of the poem. So you enter into night and into the significance of death from the opening stanza. 
and one of the stanzas in that poem that's always been most significant to me, uh, some stanzas later, because of its literary allusions and its implications, is some village Hamden that with dauntless breast the little tyrant of his fields withstood, some mute inglorious Milton here may rest, some Cromwell guiltless of his country's blood. You know, a mute in Glorious Milton is probably one of those famous phrases from Gray's poem. Mm-hmm. And what it's implying is, well, yes, there's, there's John Milton who wrote Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained. But who knows how many people lived and died simply who had sublime thoughts but never became published poets. Um, they were mute, they were inglorious, mm. but they were human beings with sensibility. You know, that's a very moving reflection. And... When we stop and um, think about that, we'll recognise that actually each of us knows people who we would say are sensitive, are intelligent, uh, are literate or kind or good, but they're not famous. They're not going to become famous and they'll die one day. They will be, as it were, mute in glorious Milton's. Mm. And That's if true. we think about it that way, we think, but they would be worthy, worthy of commemoration. We would remember them with sadness and fondness. That's the kind of thing that's been conjured by this poem. It's almost the opposite sentiments to Horace's poem Exegi Monumentum and its lines, I've built a monument more lasting than bronze, referring to his poetry and art which outlives his physical being. Yes, yes, in fact, it's, it's very well said because uh, there is not um, the poet evoking the muting glorious Milton's of the countryside and the churchyard, but a poet himself extolling his own work and saying, <laughs> I believe that what I've written is poetry of a higher kind, which will long outlast me and outshine that of most other poets. In postera crescam laude, I shall grow in later praise, as the motto of Melbourne University is. Uh, well. Yes, well, let's not go there. <laughs> mm. <laughs> as both graduates of Melbourne University, but there are problems with our universities these days in various ways. Mm. Um, uh, however, the university may be sick, but it's not yet dead, let's put it that way. <laughs> Um, what It's probably worth remarking uh, in terms of context about Thomas Gray's poem is that it was published in 1751. Gray himself uh, died 20 years later, but in those last 20 years of his life, his poem became famous to an extent that he'd never anticipated. He was quite a humble man, didn't publish a lot of poetry in his lifetime. But eight years after it was published, uh, James Wolfe, the British general, who was leading the British campaign in Canada against the French in what was called the French-Indian War or the Seven Years' War, uh, was about to storm the French stronghold of Quebec. And the night before that, he he said to his officers, so the story goes, um, referring to Thomas Gray's poem, he said, I would rather have written those lines, that poem, than to take Quebec tomorrow. Hmm. Uh, which is a remarkable thing for a general to say, that he would rather have written a moving poem than be a successful general. As it happens the next day, he did lead his forces, they did take Quebec, and he himself got killed at the very point of victory, which is remarkable when you juxtapose it with what he'd said the previous night. Um, So uh, in a sense, you might say the themes that we're discussing here come together in that incident. Mm -hmm. There's the poem published only a few years before. The general expresses admiration for the poem and and almost the sense he'd prefer to be a poet of that calibre than a general winning a war. And then he dies in a war. Mm-hmm. He becomes one of the, the mm. dead. Mm. And why is there death in the world at all? It obviously exists as a function of life, which is a question one might ponder in and of itself, why we are something rather than nothing at all. And why do we memorialise those who die? Yes, well, that's a series of questions, of course. That There is a, a fundamental question as to why there would be death. And then there's the almost metaphysical question that, as you put it, um, uh, why is there anything? Why is there life? Mm. Um, the second of those questions is is more or less intractable because we can't explain why there's life except in explaining in a scientific and biological sense how there is life. But that's not quite the same thing as any mm. Aristotelian philosopher would say. You know, it's one thing to have a sufficient explanation or an efficient explanation for why something occurs which is to say how it occurs, how it's possible to explain the final end of that, why in a purposive or teleological sense it occurs. That's a different matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has taken us most of the last 200 years 
certainly 150 years since Darwin, to pin down how life works, how it evolved, how it functions genetically and biologically. Why it occurs at all, I would say, we're, we're nowhere close to having explained it, and least of all in terms of a final purpose. And so there are religions that make up stories about how life began and where it's all heading. But any scientifically informed person will say, well, well, they're in the nature of just social stories or fairy stories. They're, there's no basis for believing those, except insofar as they might seem charming or engaging and give us some coherent ritual way to organise our thinking. But they're not a substantive explanation. But if we go back to the initial question of why there is death, mm. uh, there's a very good book by Nick Lane called Life Ascending, um, the subtitle of which is, I think, something like The, the Ten Greatest Inventions of Life. That was the 10 remarkable things that have occurred in the emergence and evolution of life, which have enabled it to take over the planet, which was previously, as it were, sterile, mm. and to grow and develop and evolve into, you know, as Darwin said, endless forms most beautiful, including ourselves. Mm. And why, why is death part of that? Is it a blight, a mistake? No. If life is to change and evolve and grow and remain healthy and shuck off diseases and accidents death is absolutely necessary otherwise you stagnate all right and you get life forms that don't change or that sicken um, and don't progress um, or you get entrenched uh, malformation or disease right so death is an invention that comes in early in the emergence of complex life forms in order that the germline the central driver of life can make progress be perfected right while cells die off and and poor mutations are shared you know um that early experiments are, are done and discarded and what we need to be able to see is that from an unsentimental point of view any given individual is not only a combination of cells which qua cells die off at regular intervals and that's essential as well but they also die because they are themselves simply uh, a quick and superfluous experiment in the overall attempt, so to speak, mm. of evolution to mm. come up with a, a, a better and, and fitter form of life. Uh, and that's true of each of us. So, you know, we get a shot, we contribute our little bit to life continuing or growing or varying, and then we die. Um, many of us reproduce in the process, and so our offspring then continue that process. Mm -hmm. And I think as a writer uh, and somebody who hasn't had children, it's worth observing, and this has been my per personal belief for quite a few years now, as a human being, we can continue the biological process by having children and raising them to the best of our ability, or we can, given that human beings are language animals and work in cultures that depend on information and its better use and, and development, we can contribute ideas. And, and that is a contribution which transcends simply reproducing biologically because it can affect the quality and understanding of any number of other human beings, mm -hmm. even though we don't have children ourselves. And, and as I aged and as I matured, I began to realise, well, I may or may not have children, but I can contribute in my own way. In to the subsequent generations of the yes, line. to my contemporaries and to who knows how many others. So if you go back to your quote about Horace, Horace had this intuition that the poetry he'd written 2,000 years ago would long outlive him, and indeed it has, to an extent that even he, I think, would be astonished by. Mm. So uh, I mentioned, just to backtrack slightly, Nick Lane's um, explanation, it's a scientific explanation of how death began and what its function is and why it's uh, necessary and uh, um, he spells this out rather beautifully in a few lines when he says once somatic cells those bodily cells have accepted their subsidiary role that is that they are bit part players in complex life forms the timing of their death becomes subservient to the needs of the germline that is what Richard Dawkins calls the selfish genes the, the real drivers of life only death, says Nick Lane, makes multicellular life possible. And of course, without death, there could be no evolution. Without differential survival, natural selection comes to nothing. If creatures can't die, nothing's being selected. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. um, so if you look at life in the natural world, uh, all this makes eminent sense. Yet when we contemplate it in ourselves or among those we love or across human societies, we see people die and those we love die, we become troubled and puzzled by it as if it was somehow unnatural. 
It isn't, of course. It is perfectly natural. But it tells us something about ourselves as human beings, as conscious beings, that we see this as a puzzle. Pretended uh, to sort of lay on myths and rationalizations around that through religion and so on as well. Yes, right? yes. And it's striking that we don't automatically, as a, dare I say, an advanced life form, understand intuitively that this is completely natural. I think there's part of us that does in any given culture. But what we know right across historic time and well before that is that human beings find the death of others, the death of those in their tribe or their family, their loved ones, sufficiently troubling that they have to invent rituals to deal with it and dignify it. And that's the central focus of poetry and of religion and of ritual and a, and a good deal of philosophy. Mm. So how do we explain the biological process of death and religious rituals around and for death? Well, I think Nick Lane fairly adequately explains the biological nature of death. The question is why as human beings we add on to that. And Thomas LeCure in a remarkable book published a couple of years ago called The Work of the Dead, it's a, it's a mighty term, it's a 700-page book, reflects on this question of why we do rituals, why we dignify corpses with commemoration and rituals rather than just throwing them on the scrap heap, so to speak. And he begins with the story about Diogenes the Cynic in 4th century BC in Athens, who famously said, you know, as far as I'm concerned, when I die, you can throw my corpse over the wall for the dogs to eat. I'm not going to be hanging around worried about it. And as Lacour says, from a purely objective point of view, Diogenes was correct. It's not going to matter to the dead person what happens to their body because they won't be aware of that. But then he says, the thing is, when we dignify the dead, we, we don't do it so that the dead won't be offended. We do it because the living are concerned. Mm. And, and his title, The Work of the Dead, is about the role in which respect for corpses and the commemoration of the dead and the rituals we have around that, as Leon Viseltia found in the case of Kaddish, tell us a lot about how we conduct ourselves in the world, what the passage through life is about how we would like to be regarded. And therefore, we, we have great hesitation in regarding corpses as garbage. We think, no, a person has passed through and this is their remains and that's significant. Mm. Uh, and so we approach it with dignity. On the other hand, what we know, and this has been true also throughout history, is that there are circumstances in which, in fact, corpses are violated or exposed or thrown to the dogs. And it's worth asking, so that's the flip side of our dignified rituals. Why does that happen? You think about Hector being dragged around the walls of Troy in the Iliad and so on. Indeed, indeed. Uh, And it's interesting you evoke the Iliad because um, funeral rites in the Iliad are of great significance. And, you know, the funeral of Patroclus and the funeral of Achilles himself when he's eventually killed uh, and of Hector the recovery of his body that Prime comes out and he says, oh, my son is dead. I want his body back. Mm. I want to give him a burial. Mm. This is exactly what we're talking about. And this is long before Christianity. We've just been talking about Homer and the Iliad and how the human respect for the dead is a central concern in it. But there is another Greek play called Antigone by Sophocles in which respect for the dead is a central concern as well. Yes, absolutely it is. And, and Antigone is one of the all-time great Greek tragedies still performed in the modern world and much reflected on by philosophers, for example, by Hegel. Uh, why? Because it brings out powerfully the nature of, of what it means to be human and why we respect the dead. And, and for those who are unfamiliar with the play, the core of it is that there are a number of, of young men in Thebes who rebel against the government. They're defeated, they're killed. And the ruling of the government is that the bodies will be exposed outside the walls. One thinks of, of Diogenes himself saying, well, you know, once I'm dead, you can throw my body outside the walls if you want. I don't care. Well, who cared? The government cared because it deliberately wanted to expose these bodies by way of indicating these people are traitors. They're outside the community, right? They have forfeited the respect we would normally accord to the dead. But Antigone is the sister of one of these men. And she insists that it is her moral duty to give him a decent burial. She's told by the government, you must not do that. And she says, on the contrary, I must. The law of the city says don't, but natural law says I must, and therefore I will. She does, and she is then condemned to death for having violated the law of the city, and she goes to her death. She's buried alive for having done that. 
And the question that's at stake here is, what is the source of our higher duty and how is this brought to the fore precisely by how we treat the dead? Mm. Uh, and it's an extraordinary play. Uh, that's that Sophocles, one of the greatest of the tragedies, the 5th century BC. Um, and th that theme, that, that reflection, resonates all the way through certainly our Western tradition. And it was... Uh, in the modern world, of course, once we'd, broadly speaking, agreed that, okay, we've got religion and we've got rituals and we have traditions and we have poetry, but we now understand that as creatures we are evolved since Darwin. We did evolve biologically and we do die. We are really mortal and we don't die because of original sin. We didn't fall into death. Death is part of the scheme of things. And it's an important part, as Nick Land had reminded us, of the scheme of things. What, therefore, are we to make of mortality? What is the meaning of this? And uh, the, the philosopher of hermeneutics, Hans-Georg Gadamer, in a book in 1981 called Reason in the Age of Science, remarked, the burial of the dead is perhaps the fundamental phenomenon of becoming human. Burial does not refer to a rapid hiding of the dead as with clearing away the shocking impression made by one suddenly stuck fast in a leaden and lasting sleep. On the contrary, by a remarkable expenditure of human labour and sacrifice, there is sought an abiding with the dead, indeed a holding fast of the dead among the living. We have to regard this in its most elementary significance. It is not a religious affair or a transposition of religion into secular customs, mores, and so on. Rather, it is a matter of the fundamental constitution of human being from which derives the specific sense of human practice. We are dealing here with a conduct of life that has spiraled out of the order of nature. So, you know, Claude Lévi-Strauss, the anthropologist, has suggested that the incest taboo was this boundary marker, mm -hmm. the cognitive break between animal life and human conscious life. Mm -hmm. Gadamer is suggesting, well, in fact, it could be funeral rites and the, and the dignified treatment of the dead, which is that boundary marker. And as he says, we're not, we're not dealing here with religion and myth, although that whole field is, is immersed in them. Rather, we're in the realm of anthropology, archaeology, human cultural evolution. In other words, we're implicated in the modern scientific reconstruction of our humanity. So the conversation you and I are having here is embedded in a deep inquiry which draws on our human sciences and our natural sciences in terms of dating and so on as to how did we come about such that we respect the dead, such that we're conscious of significance of dying and of the personal dignity and meaning implicit in it. Uh, and, and we now know that that goes a long way back. It doesn't begin in the Garden of Eden. It begins tens and tens of thousands of years ago with our human ancestors. And we don't know exactly when it begins. We do know that the Neanderthals appear to have been doing some of this mm -hmm. at least 40,000 years ago, maybe longer, given that our species have been around now for up to 300,000 years. There's a reasonable bet that some form or other of funerary practices of this kind probably go back hundreds of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. But we have very little evidence for that. But that's where we're, we're pressing the inquiry to figure out, well, this is us. This is the kind of thing that sets us apart, we think. Where did it begin? Why do we do it? Mm, but it may not set us apart um, as humans because famously elephants revisit the bones of the dead and dolphins have been observed performing grieving rituals around their deceased brethren. Indeed, it seems to go beyond the human to a ritual exhibited by more advanced life forms. Well, of course... What we do is we shift the inquiry slightly if we say advanced life form. So if it was only human beings, we'd say, well, it's precisely because we are advanced, mm -hmm. that is conscious and reflective, that we do these things. If it turns out that other mammals, I mean, dolphins and elephants, for example, are both varieties of mammal, and we think that mammals perhaps are more emotional, perhaps more intelligent creatures than reptiles or uh, you know, than insects or crustaceans or insects mm -hmm. or, or, or birds, um, maybe it's something that emerges through the more broad mammalian germline. Mm -hmm. What we can say is that, that even though elephants might revisit the bones of the dead or that there might be what appear to be elephant graveyards, so far as we're aware, they don't conduct what we would recognise as rituals mm. or actual burials. In, in, in fact, in important respects, they probably couldn't do that given mm. their physiognomy. But there may be a family resemblance, as Wittgenstein would say, between some of the things that they do or gesture at 
and what we have done more and more elaborately mm. in the course of history. What we're now at, though, is once we become scientific and self-conscious and, and what we like to think of as, uh, as disillusioned, we have to ask ourselves, all right, if we're just practical, if we're scientific, if we have enormous respect for the facts, we're not superstitious, we're not particularly religious, why do we do these things? It becomes an anthropological question and not just a religious tradition. And this brings us again back to Veseltia and Kaddish because he was a modern secular man who happened to be Jewish. Then his father dies mm -hmm. and he goes through this ritual because his father has died. But in going through the ritual, he stops and thinks, this is a remarkable ritual. And I had become oblivious to it. It, it had become, in an important sense, dead to me. Which requires a soul renovation. As, it as, as he calls it, a soul renovation. I'm rethinking and re-experiencing what it means to commemorate the dead and and for my father to have died and who I am in the world and that I am mortal. Which he understands through the Jewish tradition. He, in, in that instance, yes, understands it through the Jewish tradition. It would be a mistake, uh, or you might say cultural prejudice, to assert or assume that it was uniquely dignified. He happened to be Jewish and he rediscovers mm -hmm. that tradition. Mm -hmm. But you could be a Buddhist, you could be a Hindu, you could be a Muslim, Chinese, yeah. you could be a Muslim and you could have the same experience. But he is testifying to how profoundly it affected him doing that. Mm. And what I think I'm saying in this conversation is it's worth our while as human beings to put ourselves through that kind of exercise. And if we can do it at one, uh, I would say, higher level even than we Celtier. So instead of just putting ourselves back into whatever tradition happens to be ours or available to us, we say, but more broadly speaking, philosophically speaking, across these different traditions, what is it that's going on? And, and that's like, you know, instead of just speaking English, you say English is one of thousands of languages. Not bad. What is language? Mm -hmm. what, what is going on that we use language? Mm. That's what we're driving at here with regard to death and rituals. So when I mention becoming philosophical and rising above the, the immediately available traditions, one of the most significant philosophers of the 20th century, a controversial one because of his flirtation with, or indeed commitment to Nazism, was Martin Heidegger. But he's in some ways best known for a book published in 1927 called Being and Time. And it was his attempt to situate human thinking phenomenologically within a natural world and to remove its presuppositions from metaphysics and dualism. And it said, we are creatures in the world, but we're conscious creatures in the world. And he, he wrote of human being in the world, uh, of conscious being in the world, as what he called Dasein, the vertiginous awareness that can make us, pardon me, that can make us dizzy um, of existing in a time-bound order and of our thrownness towards death and ineluctable demise. As far as we're aware, animals don't have consciousness that they're going to die. They just live and die. Human beings, on the other hand, tend to have that consciousness. But Heidegger then says that the peculiar thing about human beings is that that consciousness is more or less a given, but we in so many cases, perhaps the majority of cases, try and push it away. We try not to think about that. We think it's morbid to think about that. We don't know what to make of that. And so we engage in all sorts of frivolities and distractions and activities or frenetic activities in order precisely not to think about death. And then one day we die or we see people that we love die and we have to confront it. Yeah. What do we then do? And he says, well, we do various things, but we could do better if we think more about this and make it constitutive of how we in fact live in our thrownness towards death. Mm. And to my way of thinking, that's a profound contribution to our philosophical thought. So if our religious traditions aren't adequate to our new understanding of death and dying, precisely how should we be thinking about that one big subject of mortality? Yes, I mean, it, it is, as you put it, in a sense, one subject and a very big subject and an intractable one because it's not going away. It's not an illusion. It is a ground reality, right? Um, and uh, one point of entry into this is that uh, some years ago now, the, the, uh, uh, the American uh, medical doctor and um, uh, science writer about uh, the life of being a doctor and about medicine society, Atul Gawande, wrote in a book called Being Mortal, uh, that when he went through medical school, he and his peers learned about how to save lives. They learned about the nature of life and illness and how to fend off illness and death. But he said, we, we didn't study death and dying because that's, that was simply the negation of what we were there to learn about 
so we were led to believe. Uh, but he said, the more I have dealt with the living and the inevitability of death and the difficulties in dying, the more I thought, we've got to do better than this. We, we've got to think harder about the conditions under which dying takes place and how to handle it better and how to live towards mortality with dignity. And this is a this is a doctor's practical reflection on the kinds of profound questions that Heidegger had been pondering almost 100 years earlier. Yeah. And you yourself, as we discussed in another podcast, had an experience with metastatic cancer. Was Gawande's book something that provided context and inspiration for that particular journey? Yeah, it was. I mean, uh, I, I read that book. I, I read another one by a fellow called Sherwin Newland, who, as I recall, was another American medical practitioner, essentially. His book's called How to Die, Reflections on Life's Final Chapter. Um, and... Uh, they were certainly part of my reading and part of my effort to think through, okay, how do I take responsibility for what could be my imminent mortality and along the way reflect better about what will in the end one way or another be my mortality, whether or not it's the cancer that kills me. But I have to say that there were more important readings I did than those books by the medical guys because, as Heidegger would have uh, certainly said, Death is about a lot more than biological demise, about the fate of our bodies. And that's the most obvious aspect of it. And the treatment of bodies as corpses is, a, mm. is the, the obvious part of rituals. But the key thing to being human is the personality that animates a body. And it's the, it's the separation of that personality, the, the disappearance of that personality that makes a body a corpse. Alas, poor Yorick. Right? Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatius. One of the, you know, it, it's it's such an evocative passage from Shakespeare. If those of our listeners are unfamiliar with it, it's, you know, one, one simply has to yeah, sure, yeah. pick it up, right? I mean, this is this is in uh, in a crucial scene in Shakespeare's Hamlet, where Hamlet is in a graveyard and he notices, and and he's got his friend Horatio with him. And he notices that. A grave is being dug, and he has no idea who it's being dug for. He's just rather curious about the process of digging a grave, and the grave digger is, is digging a hole and throwing up old skulls and bones you know, to vacate it for a new body. What Hamlet doesn't know, and he discovers it only at the end of that scene, is that the body that's about to be buried there is Ophelia, mm. his girlfriend who has just committed suicide. He doesn't know this has happened, and he doesn't know that his own words to her actually triggered her suicide. Mm. The dramatic irony is profound. But when the gravedigger throws up a particular skull and Hamlet sort of catches us, you know, and, and he says, so any idea who this was? And he stares the, death in the face. And Yes, yes. And it's, I mean, it's absolutely classic. It's been painted and all sorts of things. And the gravedigger says, oh, that, that skull there, uh, young master, you know, it belonged to uh, Yorick, who used to be the court jester. And Hamlet, you can almost hear the intake of breath because he remembers Yorick. And he had no idea this was his grave or his skull. And he, he says, alas... Poor Yorick, I, I knew him, Horatio. He was a man of most excellent jest. You know, and, yes, yes. And, Could set uh, the room at last. <laughs> that's right. A thousand times he hath borne me on his back, you know, yes. and set the table on a roll. It's a, it's a wonderful passage, right? And uh, and that, as much as almost any passage in literature, is, is having us through Hamlet's eyes confront mortality and the base materialism that we're all reduced to when hamlet says that caesar dead and turned to clay might stop a hole to keep the wind away yes yes the, the, the same fate has befallen alexander and yeah. caesar and you know and and that brings us almost back to thomas gray's elegy you know written in country church i do the people are buried uh, and the death takes us all and and there's a kind of democracy of death mm. because once you're dead you know all your glories and pretensions they're gone Horace might respond, sure, with my body, but ah, my poetry, that endures, you know. Mm. Um, but to come back to this question, therefore, of reading, if anything, that little digression throws up uh, in a variant the point I was going to make, which is I read these medical things about biological death, but we've just discovered right there that Hamlet's soliloquy or his remarks in, you know, in Shakespeare's play brings these things to the fore in a way that a more medical and biological reflection actually doesn't do. Mm. And there were two books that I did read while I was ill that did that for me. One was, was Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time, which culminates right at the end with a reflection on, on dying and its relationship to 
what it means to be alive, to be conscious, and to try and finish one's work and one's writing. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Cancer Wood, which is explicitly, and I read it for precisely this reason, of course, about a person who is in a hospital in the old Soviet Union because he has melanoma. He has the same disease I had. And he's wrestling with, well, what do I make of this? What do I do with my time? Will I die? If I'm going to die, what do I think about that? So these made a much more vivid impression and the characters come to life in the process of thinking about death yeah, much more vividly than in the medical pages. Uh, and, and Proust, in Search of Last Time, famously is immensely long. You know, and I, I'd never read it before, um, before the cancer metastasized, but... When it did, I, I had to spend long periods resting. You know, I, I was sleeping 12 hours a day. And I, and I thought, why don't I finally read Proust? First of all, while there's still time. And secondly, because I've got time, because I can't work, you know, probably. Hmm. Now, there's well over 4,000 pages in the novel. And if, if you're, you know, if people are unfamiliar with it, they 4,000 pages. I mean, who would read that? Actually, most people don't, but trust me, it's well worth doing. It's a remarkable piece of writing. And towards the very end of the final volume, um, which is actually called Time Regained, Proust's narrator, who is, um, you know, he's an alter ego. He's actually called Marcel. You know, so Marcel Proust wrote a novel with a narrator called Marcel, uh, reflects precisely on dying, and he says to himself, uh, the idea of death took up permanent residence within me in the way that love sometimes does. Not that I love death, I abhorred it, but... After a preliminary stage in which, no doubt, I thought about it from time to time, as one does about a woman with whom one is not yet in love, its image adhered now to the most profound layer of my mind, so completely that I could not give up my attention to anything without that thing first traversing the idea of death. And even if no object occupied my attention and I remained in a state of complete repose, the idea of death still kept me company as faithfully as the idea of myself. And on that day on which I had become a half-dead man, I do not think that it was the accidents characterizing this condition, my inability to walk downstairs, to remember a name, to get up from a chair, that had, even by an unconscious train of thought, given rise to this idea of death, this conviction that I was already almost dead. It seems to me, rather, that the idea had come simultaneously with the symptoms, that inevitably the mind, great mirror that it is, reflected a new reality. Yet still I did not see how from my present ailments one could pass without warning of what was to come to total death. Then, however, I thought of other people, of the countless people who die every day without the gap between their illness and their death seeming to us extraordinary. This is literary, right? This is mm. in the same kind of realm as Hamlet's mm -hmm. reflections. Mm. And that enriched my understanding of the condition I was in. When Bruce famously, as he wrote this you know, all but interminable novel, was seriously ill. He was confined largely to his bed in what, as, as they say, was a cork-lined bedroom, you know, to give him privacy, to give him quiet, to give him rest. And he wrote, and mostly he wrote at night. Uh, and uh, I did a lot of writing in those years of illness and, and a lot of reading, and, and that helped me to form my understanding of what was going on and what it meant to me. Mm. Um, but having had that thought, Proust reflected that he would render the fact of his mortality meaningful by finishing, if he could, a book that he was writing, which is, in fact, the book one is reading, even though he acknowledged that uh, eternal duration is promised no more to men's works than to men, which, of course, links back again to Horace thinking that, in fact, maybe he's transcended that yeah. with poetry that will last longer than the pyramids, yeah. you know. Um, now, Proust did finish his work, of course, and so far, 100 years after his death at the age of 50, it has survived and been acclaimed. But this isn't an outcome anyone can guarantee and isn't available at all to most mortals. They won't do things that will outlast them. In Cancer Ward, uh, the response of Vadim, the, the guy with the melanoma, is comparable to that of Marcel and thus Proust, but less ambitious. You know, he's, He simply decides that he's not going to waste what time is available to him by engaging in frivolous distractions. It's almost as if he's read his Heidegger. Mm -hmm. But he hasn't. It's just that Solzhenitsyn, the author, is, is a serious and philosophical person as Heidegger was. And uh, he has Vedim reflect that he says the, the falsest line of reasoning would be to treat 
what he was losing, that is his life, his freedom, as a premise, how happy he'd have been, how far he'd have gone, what he'd have attained if only he'd lived longer. The right view was to accept the statistics which stated that some people are bound to die young. So, dying young, a man stays young forever in people's memory. If he burns brightly before he dies, his light shines for all time. In his musings during the past few weeks, Vedam had discovered an important and at first glance paradoxical point. A man of talent can understand and accept death more easily than a man with none. Yet the former has more to lose. A man of no talent craves long life, yet Epicurus had once observed that a fool, if offered eternity, would not know what to do with it. Mm. And I love that paragraph and much else in Cancer Ward because I was in precisely that situation, even with precisely that disease, and I had to think, what do I do with my time, which may be running out and is in any case diminished by my illness. So how did your readings reshape your approach to your own mortality and... I guess, reconfigure your priorities during your illness and afterwards as well. The, the simplest way to put that is that, that I had been doing more and more writing in the years before, I be, you know, before the metastases because I had become increasingly convinced that, as we discussed in a previous podcast, I was and wanted to be a writer and a poet rather than a consultant or a political activist or, you know, a government official or whatever. Uh, and... Uh, you know, I I decided it, when I learned that I had metastases, I, I had embarked on writing a long novel, which was a great psychodynamic effort to rethink who I was in any case. And um, and that novel's called Darkness Over Love. And as it happened, by, by coincidence, you might say, I had been in the Mediterranean on fieldwork for that novel. I'd been in Spain and the Canary Islands, um before coming back and having a scan which showed that I have the metastases and yet in the Mediterranean I had drafted an epilogue to that story in which the fictional character comes back to his place at the ends of the earth and discovers that he has metastatic cancer so I'd written that not realizing I had metastatic cancer and then come back and discover that I did that was quite Disturbing uncanny way, yeah, yeah. Um, and I then decided as my highest order priority look now that it's metastasized, I might go down within a year or two. So I'm going to get a form of this story finished and published if it's the last thing that I do, literally the last thing I do. Uh, and uh, so I did publish an unfinished version of that 2014. And then I realized, first of all, I'm not yet dying and there's a whole lot of other things I'd like to sit down in writing. So I wrote a string of books, Creed on 12 Poems in 2015, Opinions and Reflections in 2016, the Secret Gospel According to Mark in 2017, Dictators and Dangerous Ideas in 2018. So a string of books and the thought that maybe I was about to die was ever present, but it kept being postponed because, in fact, I wasn't getting critically ill. Um, but what might be, you know, well, fun to share in a way, but, but meaningful to share at this juncture, is a couple of paragraphs from the epilogue to Darkness Over Love, where Fenimore the fictional character, my alter ego, if you will, in fact comes back from his travels and discovers he's got metastatic cancer and um, uh, and he falls to then reflecting on what to do. And his decision, similar to Proust's, is if I do nothing else, what I want to do is to finish my work. And he was writing, he had been writing, uh, a a long sort of philosophical private book for Margarita, his beloved. And so he decides what I will do is I will finish it to the best of my ability. I'll send it and and then I'm done. I'm going to die. Right? And so the epilogue is, is that process of him thinking that through and acting that out. But it begins with him experiencing the process of illness where he returns... He drops his bags in his mansion at the ends of the earth. He has a just walled estate with an immense library. It's a dream fulfillment on my part. And then he collapses. And that paragraph reads, I do remember, or my brain has created this memory to lend colour and coherence to its confusion. Standing under the great deep blue ceiling, staring up at Atlas the Titan, 
Pleione and their children, as if seeking to discern something from my chosen stars, like a magus in Ur of the Chaldees before there was a science of the heavens. But the frescoed fable of the changing earth began to move around, faster and faster, until I became dizzy. The Pleiades had sent a frame, then began to spin away from me like the revolving earth, as if fleeing Orion the hunter in the old astrological fable. I fell at last in my own hall, like an exhausted or defeated hunter, among the ice-age beasts and the ancient ochre signs of the artistic ordinations that surrounded me. Mm. Um, and uh, the, the balance of the epilogue is then about him being ill for a couple of weeks, discovering he's got this, this terminal cancer. There, there's really no way he's going to survive it. Um, finishing uh, the last words to his notebooks and then sending them off so that they'll reach a little circle of his intimates. And um, and then he, he signs off addressing Margarita, his beloved, to whom this whole work of his was addressed. All these levels of darkness I had set out to fathom when we met, believing still in light, the giving off of free oxygen and the exchange of information. You wanted to believe that music was the answer to all darkness, but your disillusionment with Ebreo cast a shadow of your hope. Orchestration and choral polyphony would be the human equivalent to the terraforming work of the prokaryotes, yes? Dance and song, properly understood, would be the healing therapies for the species. Ah, my songbird of paradise, if I could have one wish, it would be to hear again your singing voice, like that of Nefesh, in the high halls of Memphis in the days of our youth and our love. Now, however... I must embark alone upon Eretheia and go freely at last, where none shall find me. It's an incredible body of work to have written while ill and to have seen it all into print. But you obviously recovered. And once you had, did you find that your priorities in life had permanently shifted? I, I would say that uh, it induced, once I realised that I was actually not going to die imminently, a total commitment to serious writing, above all poetry, and to love and meaning. In other words, I, to answer your question, no, I, I wasn't about to revert. Uh, in fact, I remember very specifically lying in a hot bath one evening thinking about, all right, if I'm not going to die sometime soon, if I'm in complete remission, as they tell me, I've got to earn a living again. What do I want to do? What am I going to do? And and it was very clear to me emotionally, intuitively, I don't want to just go back to earning a living in terms of a business. And this is crucial in, in terms of the existential parameters we're talking about. What did I want to do? I passionately wanted to write. And so I thought, okay, good, that's fine. But if I'm going to do that, it has to earn a living for me. So what can I write that will both be authentic and creative and earn me a living? And I set about thinking that through. And I've been engaged since then, this is the last three years, in a number of projects that have the intention of being both highly creative and raising my profile and therefore my earning capabilities to a whole new level. Um, one of those projects is a book of poetry called Lyrical Epigrams, which we've excerpted from in a couple of our interviews. Another is a major TV drama uh, about the fainting of the Emirate of Cordoba in the 8th century. Um, and uh, and as I've worked on these, there's been a slow revitalization. And I have, in fact, got to the point now where I can enjoy life more than I've been able to do for quite a few years. But that enjoyment is strongly geared to these existential questions. Mm. That reveals what you've been doing in life since your recovery. But talk to us a bit more about those reflections on death, which you've continued throughout. Yes, I, I think there's a couple of aspects to that. One is that um, not only because I'd been through what, in a sense, was a diffuse near-death experience, but because I'm now 64, I'm not a young man, and I'll never be young again, I'm more aware than before that however well the next few years may go, um, my days are numbered in an important sense, an irreducible sense. And so I, I think about that and I use it to focus my attention on my priorities. But one of the other things I do on a regular basis is I walk, I, I go for a walk every day, and because of where I live, there's a large cemetery, the Melbourne Central Cemetery, only a couple of hundred yards away. And I'll often walk through there because it's a great stimulus to thinking about the very things you and I have just been discussing. And one of the things that strikes me again and again when I walk through the cemetery is that there are endless examples and, and they leap at you, you know, from all sides. You don't have to sort of go hunting them down in obscure corners of the graveyard. Um, 
of gravestones that go back to the period between the 1850s when the cemetery was more or less set up to at least the 1950s, where you find stone after stone commemorating children dying in infancy, children dying in early childhood, young adults dying in their 20s or 30s or 40s, to an extent that you simply don't see in the more recent gravestones. It's, it's stark demographic evidence that life expectancy was much lower, even here in Australia, in a free and prosperous uh, and relatively healthy environment, until the last half century. Mm. Um, and uh, and that's really thought-provoking, and, and it's very poignant because... Uh, to to give a couple of examples, you know, so here's here's for example a, a Morris Random gravestone, right, uh, which is haunting because we don't know who erected it and it's obviously long neglected and you can just make out the writing which reads sacred to the memory of Donald Ross, who departed this life on March the tenth, eighteen fifty seven, aged six months, aged six months, you know, and we've been talking about why do we treat bodies with respect, why do we give them burial rights. This was a six-month-old child. You know, the, the name Donald Ross is given to an infant who never got going, really, mm. you know. Uh, and you think, what's the story there? Who were the parents? Who, You know, what was the little ceremony around the erection of the gravestone, the burial of that little infant? We don't know. It might be possible to find out, but... Well, to go back to, um, to, go back to Gray's elegy written in the country churchyard, you know, some Cromwell guiltless of his country's blood, some Newton glorious Milton... You know, here may rest. You know, their the potentiality unmanifested. Well, and this in, is an extreme case of unrealized potentiality because mm-hmm. this is not some intelligent, sensitive thirty, forty, fifty-year-old who died unrenowned. Mm-hmm. It's a six-month-old child who never really got a chance in life, mm-hmm. um, and would never have even been, in the normal sense of the word, conscious that it was alive. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's another one. Um, you know, that's Donald Ross, a completely separate. Gravestone. There's no reason to believe that they're connected by family. Is is William Ross, uh, and it lists five sons of his who died. So the gravestone reads, "In loving memory of my dear husband William Ross, who who died at 45 in 1907." And then it adds poignantly, "And of our sons." And listen to this: William, Thomas, and Nicholas, three sons who died in infancy. We're not told exactly when. And then Private Jerome Ross died, Posier, France, 3 July 1916, aged 20. And Redmond Ross, 16th Battalion AIF, killed in action, Saint-Quentin, France, 23 August 1918, aged 25. That's an incredible story. So you, we don't know what eventually became of the, of the woman who dedicated this grave to her husband. What we know is that she lost him when he was 45, they had already lost three sons in infancy, and then while she was still alive, both her remaining sons, at least unless they had others as well, died at the ages of 20 and 25 in a First World War. That's a staggering story. Hmm. And that's one simple gravestone at random. Or there's one even more poignant in its own way. John Elizabeth Gillies, in memory of their children, it says, John died 29 April 1857, aged one year. William died 23 September 1857, the same year, aged four years. Adam died 1st November 1852, so five years earlier, aged two years and five months. So three children dead in infancy. And it's it's bare, it's stark. It's, these are the basic facts. There's no narrative. There's no exclamation. Alas, poor children, I knew them mm. and I loved them tenderly. Just the names and the dates. And you mm. think, wow, imagine living through that. Mm. And, and carrying on with life after such an immense loss. Yes, yes. As a family member. You know, yeah. you you you've lost three sons in infancy. You lost your husband, who was only forty-five. You have two sons who appear perfectly healthy, and they're killed in the First World War at the ages of twenty and twenty-five. How do you deal with that? I suppose death was far more a part of everyday life for that generation. Crushingly so, and and that, as we said, is in a society, a settlement in in Victoria, in Australia, that it, by world standards is is prosperous. You know, in those years, Australia is one of the most prosperous per capita countries in the world, right? It's free, it's well-governed compared with most countries. It's relatively healthy. And still this is happening, mm. right? Um, and uh, and then, as I said, there's the, the Gillies who lose three uh, sons uh, within five years, all in infancy or very young. And then there's one in, in memory, it says, of Eleanor, beloved wife of Robert Richardson, 
died 20 April 1886, aged 53, and their infant children, Jane, born 31 January 1850, died 11 September 1852, so two and a half years old. Elizabeth, born 11 August 1851, died 7 September 1852, so around the same time as her sister Jane, but uh, slightly younger. Jane Elizabeth, named for the other two, born 19 March 1854, died 10 April 1856. Mm. And Sarah, born 24 September 1865, almost a decade later, died 12 May 1866, less than a year old. And finally, Robert Richardson died East Melbourne, 23 May 1893, aged 69. Having lived through all of that, the graveyard is full of that. And a way to wrap around what we're reflecting on is that this is a microcosm of the human condition all around the world, right across history. That has been going on. Billions and billions of cases. Endless cases. You know, we talk about muting glorious... Milton's, well, you know, not maybe Milton's, but certainly mutant inglorious, and in all too many cases died so young that they never got to live flourishing lives. Hmm. You call your podcast series Bloom, you know, and you like to interview people who've lived interesting and flourishing lives. I've been fortunate in a lot of ways. I've done exactly that despite the cancer, right? But what we see in the graveyard, what I ponder every time I walk through it, is so many people have not had that opportunity. I suppose it's what we have to be so grateful for, the fact that we've lived relatively long and flourishing and peaceful lives historically. A lot of these sentiments are captured by Oliver Sacks, a wonderful doctor and writer whom many listeners would be familiar with. In facing his own death through metastatic cancer, he wrote a beautiful book called Gratitude, of which there are two excerpts I'd like to read and conclude the interview on today. The first is, I cannot pretend I am without fear. My predominant feeling is one of gratitude. I have loved and been loved. I have been given much and I have given something in return. I have read and travelled and thought and written. I have had an intercourse with the world, the special intercourse of writers and readers. Above all, I have been a sentient being, a thinking animal on this beautiful planet, and that in itself has been enormous privilege and adventure. And the second one is, writing at around the age of 80, thinking back on what he could have done differently and whether he might have got more out of life, which is something that plagues us all, he wrote... At nearly 80, with a scattering of medical and surgical problems, none disabling, I feel glad to be alive. I'm glad I'm not dead sometimes bursts out of me when the weather is perfect. I am grateful that I have experienced many things, some wonderful, some horrible, and that I've been able to write a dozen books, to receive innumerable letters from friends, colleagues and readers, and to enjoy what Nathaniel Hawthorne called an intercourse with the world. I'm sorry I have wasted and still waste so much time. I'm sorry to be as agonisingly shy at 80 as I was at 20. I am sorry that I speak no languages but my mother tongue and that I have not travelled or experienced other cultures as widely as I should have done. Look, I can absolutely relate to all of that. I mean, all of that. I really mean that. Um, With the possible exception that I'm I'm not perhaps as shy as he was. Mm. Um, And... uh, uh, and I, I don't know because I haven't checked his record, but when he says he feels that he could have travelled more widely, I, I have managed to travel fairly widely and um, I really cherish the exposure that's given me to the variety of humanity. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'm only 64. He was writing that when he was 80. If I live until I'm 80 or so, that's 16 years. Given where I've managed to get so far that I've survived the cancer, it's... Um, it's absolutely inspiring to think of what I might be able to accomplish in 16 more years. Yeah. And uh, if anything, there's there's probably a, a, a note that could be worth concluding on. Mm-hmm. And that is that, as I, I have said in a previous podcast, you know, more than one, my, my great soulmate, my muse, my partner in life was Claudia. And a couple of years ago, we had been traveling in Spain and Switzerland and we were about to part company because she... Um, lives and works in Caracas and I in Melbourne and she said to me in the departure lounge I intend to live until I'm 92 and I want you around for the duration and I I said well that's a very sweet thing to say but if I do that I'll be 104 and uh, I'm really not sure you'd want me around (laughs) Mm. Um, and uh, what that says is two things or three things I suppose one is that she and I both conscious of ageing and mortality but she's very full of vitality and committed to life, wants to live a long life and wants my company in that life. That's a beautiful thing to hear. 
Secondly, that nevertheless, it's an ineluctable process. We do age and we cannot forever fend it off and we will end up parting. One of us will die before the other and barring some terrible accident, I'll go first because I'm 12 years older than her and I've been ill and she's full of fitness and vitality. But the third thing and the the highlight of it is that that we are doing this. We're sharing our lives with great freedom. We're traveling. we're, We're seeing things together. We're talking about everything. We care about each other. That's a great way to live. And that's been enhanced for me by the experience of illness and reflecting on death. And to link it back to the original comment we made at the start of the interview about how strange existence is in itself, that we should be anything at all and not nothing, we should be so grateful to have been alive at all and to have experienced life on this beautiful planet. Yeah, I mean, stones can be sublime to contemplate, but I wouldn't swap places for them for any money. (laughs) Thank you very much for your time, Paul. It's been wonderful. Thank you.